That was the sounds of the Upper West Side as every evening at 7 p.m., neighbors cheer on our amazing medical and essential workers who are caring for our fellow citizens in this era of COVID-19. You're tuned to Bar Crawl Radio. Becky and I are not recording in neighborhood bars right now, but we are continuing to bring you interesting conversations with citizens doing important work. Recently, a dear friend sent me her son's new book about his work in the field of social justice in poor and black communities in the Chicago area and elsewhere. At the end of Seeds of Justice, Alex Tyndall Wiesendonger writes, We can transform our churches, and our churches can transform the world. Today, we'll be talking with Alex and two other Christian leaders working for social justice. And this BCR episode was co-produced by Alina Larson. All right. With that bit of an intro, here we go. That was Wade Ripka's Eastern Blockheads Band, who will return to Barbez in Brooklyn as soon as we conquer COVID-19. With us today are Alex Tendel Wiesendonger, He has worked with the Jesuit Volunteer Corps and lived in a Catholic worker community. Alex was the former director of the Illinois Community Renewal Society and associate director of the Tennessee Coalition to Abolish State Killing. Also with us is Peter Cook. He is the executive director of the New York State Council of Churches. He was senior minister at the First Congregational Church in Burlington, Vermont, and the Plymouth Church in Framingham, Massachusetts, and pastor of St. John's United Church of Christ in Waukegan, Illinois. Brian Kramer's experience of tutoring high school students in 2011 led in 2013 to working with homeless men at the Doe Fund. Brian is now the co-leader of the justice team of the Fourth Universalist Society of New York. Okay, welcome all. Each of you have a totally different and yet very similar story of how you got into the work of social justice uh, within the structure of the church. Can we share those beginnings? I guess I grew up in a family uh, that was very socially justice, social justice oriented. Uh, It was Berkeley, California in the 60s and 70s. My uh, father was head of the a redevelopment agency in Berkeley, and my mother worked as a Christian educator at the church there and really um, helped integrate the first preschool in Berkeley in the 60s and 70s. So it's been a part of the family ethos a long time. Um, after seminary, my first church was in uh, Waukegan, Illinois, St. John's United Church of Christ. Working class uh, community, Uh, Waukegan was a town that really um, was left behind with factories closing, community that really struggled. You know, we really delved deeply into questions around housing and homelessness. And we decided um, about halfway through my ministry that we would build and affordable housing development for seniors and people with disabilities. And we did succeed in doing that, um, a, a 22-unit development. So this this was sort of your family business that, that you got into. Yeah. Was it always assumed that you would uh, that, that you would become part of the clergy? I mean, was that always some, your dream? Uh, no, I fought, fought it for a long time. Mm-hmm. I went to Lucent Clark College in Portland, Oregon, and I probably did everything I could to avoid the church as much as possible. Um, you know, I was very interested in social movements and history and justice kinds of issues, but really was not connecting that a whole lot to the church. But there was a point at which I really felt that the parish church to use Robert Bellow's image really embraced the whole of life at its best um, really was the vehicle to engage a community with God at center and where we work on building community and so I went through a bit of a transformation after fighting this a long time and found myself uh, 
going to seminary. And and Alex, um, I know you have a very different beginning on the road that you took than than Peter's. I know known your mother for a long, long time. In fact, she she sent me your your book, and I was so interested in it. I knew we had to talk about this. How did you get into social justice movement and the church involved in social justice? Absolutely. So uh, I grew up on the other side of the country from Peter, right here, um, you know, in New York City, in Harlem in the 80s. And for folks who are here, right, you know, and can remember that time, Harlem was a community that was really struggling, really oppressed, almost all kind of black and brown, low-income families. And I got sort of tricked very early by the world into seeing and understanding injustice. So for me, it was first grade or kindergarten, because when you take standardized tests as a five-year-old, you're not testing intelligence, right? You're testing your social background, your social economic status, what books are your parents reading to you? So I was able to test, right, as quote-unquote gifted. Um, so I went downtown to a fancy school, you know, fancy gifted school, and I walk into the classroom and immediately notice the kids in this class don't look anything like my friends on the playground in my neighborhood. And, you know, after a few minutes, you can figure out, but they're not smarter here than my friends. What's going on? And you get invited over to their houses and their houses are way different, right? Than, than my, my apartment. You know, once you move out of New York, you realize that they're not actually big. They're still small, but for New York, these are big apartments. <laughs> and, and then you invite your friends over for a play date and their parents say like, oh no, they, they can't come there, right? They can't come up to that neighborhood. And so kind of very early, I was able to watch as I get put on this path that's for middle-income, upper-income white kids, right? Go to a good high school, go to college, go to law school, go get a business degree, right? Whatever those things are. And it's all set up for me. That's what everyone on this path is doing. And my friends are going to this school that looks totally different than the school I went to, that has totally different resources. They're getting you know, arrested, they're getting pushed out, and they're on this path, right, to be pushed out of school, to get harassed, to end up in jail, right, to end up dead. These are the, the plans. And it was set up starting when we were five years old. So that, you know, kind of forced me to, to see that this wasn't about individuals, this was about the structures that our society sets up and that we're all a part of, whether we're actively doing it or not. And then, you know, for me, I, I was very blessed to grow up in um, what is becoming more and more an anachronism, but sort of a really progressive Catholic church that made those connections for me very quickly, saying like, actually, this crazy, itinerant, brown-skinned Palestinian that we all worship was a social revolutionary. And so it was very easy for me to connect the struggles that was happening in my community with the struggles that we were reading about in the Bible. Um, and knowing that that was my spiritual home, but also knowing that the church is something really special. And I think we can dig into this more of why the church should and needs to be at the center of, of any social movement. And we will. And I, I urge people, if you haven't seen it yet, Seeds of Justice, and get more of that story of Alex's beginning uh, in, in his road towards uh, the church and social justice. Brian, what is your story? I came at this from, uh, I guess, the opposite side of religion, as well as the opposite side of social justice. You know, I grew up a self-described white guy from New Jersey. You know, religion, my, my parents uh, mixed religion, so I, I never really bought into either one of them. I guess when I, I, I wasn't doing well in college and, and a friend of my mother's from her church helped me out and kind of, you know, sat me down and, and gave me a, uh, an introduction to a, to a company, a job, and I realized how much uh, somebody giving you a, a hand up can help. Did well, went on from there and, and realized how important the job was and how satisfying it could be and uh, started volunteering and first started tutoring then the Doe Fund with homeless men and, and helping them get jobs and job placement. It was, I guess, a lot of people midlife with parents, you know, discovered religion. And someone introduced me to uh, ethical culture and uh, the Unitarian religion. That really resonated with me because it was people that were focused on doing good. There was a lot of freedom in what you believed. It was really eye-opening. Uh, the Doe Fund was thoroughly eye-opening to, to see the other other side, to realize, like, 
there's, uh, for example, criminal justice. There's really two worlds of criminal justice. There was criminal justice that, you know, the police are your friend. And um, what a lot of these guys at the Doe Fund went through. The more I learned, the more I realized that there was a lot of work to be done. And once I found Fourth Universalist, I found uh, kindred spirits there. And uh, I became, now I'm a co-lead of the justice team. So we work on social justice and we work on trying to get the, the, uh, the congregation to go along with us. So it's been kind of a strange strange journey, but it's been a good one. Peter, you're the head of the New York State Council of Churches. Tell us about what that organization is, its history, and maybe um, a little bit about its mission. The New York State Council of Churches had its beginnings in the late 19th century as the New York Sunday School Association, and uh, that was a time when Sunday school was really about offering literacy to people, I mean, it, it, it didn't look anything like what Sunday school might look like now. I think it was probably a much more socially engaged exercise. Um, but, um, you know, we really were born out of the social gospel movement, which really said that, you know, preaching the gospel is not just about one's personal salvation, but about you know, sanctifying a community, the world, about, you know, lifting up the poor and the forgotten and the disenfranchised. So that's kind of our early history. You know, at present, uh, we're comprised of about 7,000 Protestant congregations wow. across the state of New York. Uh, and we work really in three or four areas. Uh, one is really trying to influence social uh, policy and uh, legislation, which we think is going to lift up the poor and the disenfranchised and the forgotten. And so we just weigh in on a whole bunch of things from the environment, to health care, to economic inequality, to access to housing. The COVID crisis is, just posed immense public policy challenges for us. So we try to educate our congregations about these issues um, so that they can use these tools to act in the public square. Brian, let's let's jump to you. The Fourth Universalist Society of New York. You know, briefly what 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 is that organization? Then the Justice Team. I'd like to hear about that because uh, I know you were de- you helped develop that. And what 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 are their goals? Yeah, so um it was started when when I joined the church. Um it's a group under the uh, head minister that really tries to um bring social justice to the congregation and um, help get them engaged. I guess um, I look at it as we're, we're finders and facilitators. We um, are involved in finding opportunities that uh, congregants can take part in, and then we uh, really make it easy for them. I, I kind of figure it's, it's like a friend uh, that might you know, know all the good restaurants and then he organizes a trip to the restaurant. That's kind of what we do. You know, we look like maybe there's a rally. Uh, maybe there's a meeting at town hall, a letter signing. Um, so part of it's education. And then once we find something, we'll make it easy. We'll set up, uh, you know, we'll have the letters that people can sign. And we'll, we'll have the meeting and we'll get the group together. So that's, that's really what we do in a nutshell. And finally, Alex, I don't think you are involved with them anymore, but the Community Renewal Society in Chicago, you were headed up for quite a number of years. So maybe you can talk about that organization. Yeah, I'd, I'd be thrilled to. So uh, the Community Renewal Society was a, is a 100, maybe 40-year-old organization now in Chicago, um, I was the director of organizing there under uh, the Reverend, the leadership of the Reverend Dr. Calvin Morris, who uh, came out of worked on Dr. King's staff, was Jesse Jackson's number two in founding Rainbow Push, uh, and a real icon of the social justice movement and a mentor to me. CRS was a network of over 100 congregations by the time we were done across the Chicago metro area, organizing themselves to take you know, really powerful action around racial and economic justice issues. And so working with 
the ministries like Brian, right? Like going in and, and working with the Brian's and his teams in every congregation from Unitarian to Baptist to Catholic to everywhere in between, um, trying to exert the power of the church to really move changes in public policy and practices. Can you think of one particular um, activity that um, the CRS that you were involved with that you were very proud of? Wow, there are, there are a lot, but I think I would identify uh, two things if it's okay. So the first was the creation and launch of something called the Force Project, which stood for Fighting to Overcome Records and Create Equality. So it was an organization organizing and run by people with criminal records who were then organizing other people with records around the issues that were really impacting their ability to reenter their communities and live their lives. And that network of, uh, of people with records passed a bunch of bills around the state to remove systemic barriers to reentry, things like you couldn't get certain uh, professional licenses if you had a criminal record. You couldn't seal your record. It sits on there forever. So expanding the sealing of records, removing barriers to employment uh, was a huge thing. And we, we saw hundreds of people with records take action for themselves. Um, the second was a network of churches kind of taking control of the issues of violence that they were facing and uh, launching something called the Reclaim Campaign, which basically called to move people out of the Cook County Jail and invest money in neighborhood-based peace hubs. And to do that, we had to launch a four-pronged effort because one of the problems with the, the criminal justice system which is not that different here, is that it's a multi-headed monster and no one person is running everything. So you had the president of Cook County who's in charge of the county budget. You had the sheriff who's in charge of the jail. You had the state's attorney who's sending people to the jail, right? We had to network and build a campaign that moved and impacted all of those people to do a set of things. But there's now a restorative justice court in my old home neighborhood of North Lawndale. And then I'm, I'm gonna lie. The third thing I think is we created a culture with our public assemblies, particularly on Martin Luther King Day, when you'd see thousands of church members come and demand and drag their elected officials down to the front of the church and insist that those officials give a yes, no commitment to all of the issues that the congregations themselves had come up on and demand that it became kind of this ritual uh, that elected officials sort of knew they had to come because there were too many churches in their district that would make their lives like a living hell if they didn't. Um, and became this really kind of powerful annual moment um, where you'd see elected officials the first time they came just freaking out and like, you know, terrified and angry and then learning that, oh, if I behave, this actually goes well and becoming kind of like looking forward to it moments of, yeah, this is the time I, I get held accountable, but it's in a really good way because then when I'm trying to move these bills, I've got churches all around the state who go make other people's lives hell for me. And I like that. So I want to stay on their good side and I'll be there. Right. Um, so. so you're all working for positive social change. Um, clearly, our country has a far way to go to gain social equity for all of our citizens. How is this an appropriate work for the church? Well, let me let me just uh, yeah go start ahead, with a nice classic reform theological approach here. John Calvin said that we receive the grace of God, but in response to the grace that we receive, we are called to build the city of God and to build a a holy and a just society. What is a holy and just society, of course, is somewhat open to debate, and whether you really discern correctly, the grace of God is also open to debate sometimes. But um, really, uh, that personal kind of religion, uh, which is disconnected from the world around you, really is... Um, has very tenuous, a very tenuous theological foundation. Unfortunately, what we have sometimes in churches is that 
they think that this is just kind of a personal thing and to not get involved in things like politics, which is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. <laughs> because if you choose not to be involved in politics, you are taking a political position. So that's an impossibility. So it's better to embrace the fact that everything in the church is political in its most positive sense. And you're there to help each person that you encounter in your church and your community to see that they are um, deserving of God's grace, that they are children of God, and that they need to be treated as such. And that is about our interpersonal actions, but it's also about making structural and societal changes. But Alex, not everyone would in a, in a congregation would agree with that. That must be a struggle. So how do you explain to them that this is the church's activity? This isn't appropriate. This is appropriate. Yeah. I think it's, it's beyond appropriate. It's required and necessary. I think that the big lie, and, and Peter referred to this, the big lie we've been told is that churches aren't supposed to be political. And in fact, you can't open the Bible and find, not find an example of the church being political, right? The, if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, Moses is committing political acts, right? Changing the fundamental social structure of Egypt, right? Taking a people from bondage into freedom is a political action. It has nothing to do with praying and going to heaven. That's just not what happens. Very similarly, Jesus's message is deeply and overtly political in every moment, which is why Jesus is crucified, right? A lot of these things we forget today, but crucifixion wasn't for misbehavior. Crucifixion was for opposing the Roman state. It was only for enemies of the state, which you only get for being political, right? Every part of our, our theology should point us toward taking action. But I think that we have to go a little deeper. I mean, engaging people and engaging churches, um, sort of the credo that, that I've developed working with folks is we should stop talking at people about our theology, having just spewed at you all about my theology, and really start talking to people and with people about their own experience and what's happening in their own lives and unpacking some of, of these issues, and especially unpacking what does it mean for you that we have a school system that is based totally on how much money your parents make and where you live, right? And what does that mean, and how does that reflect, and do you think God is happy with that? And as we get into those moments and build those relationships, that's how we move people to action. So I guess I'd say first, you know, this lie that we aren't supposed to be political is dangerous. And the folks who benefit from it are the people who don't want most of us to be engaged. Uh, and then I'd, I'd second say that it's on us then to go out and have real authentic conversations throughout our churches and engage people based in, in their real hearts and their guts. So a lot of us like to spend a lot of time up in our heads. And the more we can get people to respond from their souls, I think we, we, uh, we move them to action. Right, from where they live. So, Brian, you... Um how do you, where do you stand on this idea of politics and the religion? I mean, you came to religion as an adult, you yeah. say. So I guess um, Unitarian, the Unitarian religion was just very, very different than um, how I was raised. Um, it's really baked right into the religion. And um, there's seven principles that um, they're guides on, on how Unitarians should um, be in the world. And, uh, for example, the, the fifth principle is the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregation and society at large. So there you have it. You know, right now we're doing a big get out the vote drive and uh, we're working on using phone calls and postcards to help register people in suppressed states. So, um, you know, that's right there. Based on that, we attract a certain activist crowd and people who really 
believe in social justice and want a religion that's infused with social justice. You know, I'm hearing from all three of you that um, religion, um, the, the, the church, Christianity, and I would bring in Judaism is similarly, is, is really political. I mean, there, there's, the, there's religious, the belief, the, the raising of the spirit, but that it cannot be separated from the political. And yet the way our system is set up the church is separated from the state. It's separated at a financial basis and at a legal basis. And so, um, you know, how do you bring those two things together when what you're doing is both religious and socially relevant and political? Yeah, you know, I think that's one of the other big misconceptions and misunderstandings, right? This idea of the sep- that separation of church and state means that the church can't stake out positions and advocate for political issues is false. And, and in fact, even the IRS will tell you that, right? That a church is absolutely allowed to do what's called citizen lobbying, to do what Brian is just referring to of get out the vote. The distinction on a legal basis is that we shouldn't become partisan. And I think for a lot of us, one of the reasons that for many years, sort of people on the progressive end of the spectrum moved away from the church is because we saw the church kind of abused and becoming just a sort of an operational arm of the Republican Party, So that's, which is really bad for the church. Are there issues that are improper to pursue with a congregation? Is it inappropriate for a church leader to endorse a political candidate? Um, the answer is yes, it is. Although, yeah, there used to be a time uh, in New England where the preacher gave what was called the election sermon. That was way back in the day, and people would gather, and I'm not sure that it quite came to an endorsement, but it's pretty darn close. It's really about holding up what are the ideals that we want anyone running for elected office to aspire to, and then let people evaluate that accordingly. Trust their intelligence. The other thing I would just say is, in terms of preaching, you know, from a political perspective in the pulpit, pastors are not there as, you know, marketers trying to, you know, push one point of view and to win everybody over to that view. They're there to provoke and to get people to think and to stir their conscience and then to act based on what they heard coming out of their own wrestling. Um, you have a, a parishioner come to you and say, Reverend, I, I like what Trump is doing. I think he's, you know, I think he's doing a great job. Uh, I'm worried about this and that, that he is. But uh, what, what, what is your personal opinion? Do you give that? It always depends on the context uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'm talking to. I mean, it might be if you've got a pretty strong Trump supporter, that you respond by asking questions or, or saying things like, well, that's one way to look at it. Have you considered thinking about it this way? Mm-hmm or trying to find out what that person's really struggling with, you know, in their own lives Mm -hmm. and how it is that they came to this point of view. And you just sort of proceed from there. It's, it's difficult. It's hard. You know, sometimes you just got to say what you, what you think about a a president or a candidate. Um, But I think the, the point here is how do you engage a person in a relationship? There's reasons that people voted for Donald Trump, and they're not all crazy. You know, they feel a lot of times like the establishment, Washington, just does didn't speak to their needs anymore. And the sense of despair that um, government really can't deliver and... They like sort of the bombastic, iconoclastic approach of Trump that they, you know, sort of perceive as, you know, sticking it to the establishment, you know, but trying to get under that and sort of understand where people are coming from, I think, is important. 
So, Brian, what about you? One of the sub-teams that, um, in the justice team is the democracy group. And uh, part of that is expanding democracy out to the general public. But, but the other part of it is using our democratic system to further the belief we have in certain issues. So it's building relationships with our representatives. It's letter writing campaigns to our representatives. It's, it's anything we can do um, to bring people around to, you know, our, our beliefs. So, um, but it's issue-based. What if there's a large donor at your church that disagrees with the work that you're doing? Have you come up against that? Is that some, how do you handle it? That, it's, that's hard. I think, I think you do the best you can with good pastoral care and to stay connected with people and to make them feel as though you care about them as a human being um, and that you're not pastoring to people um, in a really partial way, but to really give people that attention. Um, but even with all of that, it, it a lot of times doesn't work. And some people just are going to have to leave and, and they're going to have to take their money with them. And if you try to pander too much, that doesn't, then you start hurting other people in the church. And, and frankly, you, you kind of lose your integrity. And I think even that wealthy donor would see that. So I think to be as honest as you can and as caring as you can. But, you know, there's only so much you can do. And you, you can't sell out your integrity in the process. And sometimes people on their journey, they just, they need to leave and go someplace else. Mm -hmm. And uh, to be able to do that, gracefully with them and honorably with them i think is difficult but don't uh don't pander that's that would be my advice and alex you said you had a story thank you peter yeah um i think peter's right i think there's sort of two big pieces that i draw but I, my first is a story of a set of churches that, that we were working with and there's this Coke fund, brother funded fake think tank in Illinois called the Illinois Policy Institute that has a ton of money to put out, you know, attack public services, attack taxes are the worst, slash everything, slash public schools, you know, and, and they do a lot of that. And so uh, we marched and held a prayer vigil um, to bring a spirit of truth to the Illinois Policy Institute. The executive director of the Illinois Policy Institute was an active and incredibly large donor of one of our bigger, more wealthy churches um, and responded, as you would imagine, kind of very negatively. And I was so proud of how well trained that pastor was because, you know, he sent this email that was clearly like he expected the response of the pastor to be like, oh, we should never have been political. I'm so sorry. We'll never do that again. And instead, because the pastor had been trained in relational organizing, the pastor said, well, look, I'm, I understand how you feel. Our church came to this issue through a process where we talked to everyone and we had a, you know, a deliberative process listening to our neighbors, listening to our congregation. I'd love to sit down with you and talk about that and talk about how we got there. In the end, the person didn't want to have the conversation, but actively stayed in the church, right? He sort of thought that the church would back down immediately, but he stayed in the church and continued to be an active member. He never came to, you know, a march on his own organization, but he wasn't going to do that anyway. And I think what that illustrates is that there is this fear and this belief, even in, in those of us doing this work, that if we do political work, it will be divisive within our congregation. But my experience is if we come at it the right way, it's actually a thing that energizes and engages our congregation. I mean, it can bring people together if we start not from, I'm up here to tell you about criminal justice reform or whatever the issues we care about. But if we start by, we know that our love has to be about everything and understanding what's important, we're going to go talk to everyone in our church through a process to identify issues and take action. It's very unifying. 
with that said, there are some people who won't buy into that. And the last thing we used to train clergy in and still do is that you choose who you lose. And you need to understand that if you keep those people who want to spew, you know, something racist or want to shoot down everything that, you know, sounds political, you can do that. But you can't then ask, why aren't there young people in our church? Because you've decided to build a church that people don't want to be a part of, Mm -hmm. right? Because they know you won't stand on the issues that affect them Monday through Saturday. So why should I come to your church on Sunday? And so I think that this is a crucial part of re-engaging, you know, unchurched people. And the generation I'm like at the very old end of, when I used to do this work, I got asked a lot, how do we get more young people like you in the church? No one asks me that anymore. (laughs) Um, You seem pretty young there, Alex. I appreciate that. But, you know, this is the least church generation in American history. And it's not because people don't want to be connected to things. And it's not because they don't want to believe in God. It's because they don't believe in the church. And it's because they don't see the church standing up for its own values. So you can grow your church when you take this seriously. When we're uh, talking here, the communities that we're talking about is the community of the poor, the community of the depressed, financially depressed, but also emotionally depressed, and the um, uh, black community, which you write which about. Which is one and the same, actually. Which um, is in this country is a lot, is, is, is mostly the same. You've just been talking, Alex, and, and, and um, I think all of you have been been referring to it, is the, you don't pick the issue, you let the congregation pick the issue by listening. And in your book, Seeds of Justice, you emphasize that and how you do that. But here's the question that I have, is that you have an overview, uh, the three of you, about how the system works, because you work with the system, you work with the politicians, you work with the bureaucrats in order to make change. Um, your congregation doesn't necessarily have that overview. And so it's listening, but it must also be guiding that listening. It's not just all listening. It, it's got to be It's got to be more kind of like, we can do that, we can't do that. Brian, I see you shaking your head. You want to say something about yeah. that? We, we, we do a, a, a good amount of, of education. You know, I, I always say education is the root of activism. Um, for example, we're doing this big um, postcard writing drive to register, re-register voters down in, in uh, voter-suppressed states. That started with the screening of a half-an-hour documentary, Suppress the Fight to Vote. People, we, we had a screening in our congregation. People watched it. A lot of them were like, how can this be in America? You know, how, how can this possibly be happening? And once they saw the video, they said, this has got to change. You know, they were all fired up. What can we do to change this? And then we can step in and say, well, funny, funny you asked. We're looking to organize this postcard (laughs) writing. And, uh, you know, we had 40 people, 50 people for a couple of these parties pre, uh, pre Corona. And, um, now we've ramped up again and people are writing postcards from home and we're adding, you know, more and more and more people. So, um, that's a big part. We screened a, uh, uh, a movie I first got involved with Fourth Universalist screening Rikers in American Jail. And again, people saw that and said, wow, that's awful. I did not know that that existed, that those were the conditions. And, you know, that was a little more problematic, finding things people could do to become engaged. But um, they, they certainly, you know, it, it opened a lot of eyes. So, Peter, are you involved with that, with that, everyone out there, who, the churches that are belong to us, here's, here's an idea that we should be looking at. We try to really work through a lot of movements and information and try to organize it in ways so that it's intelligible to people so that they can act. I think that's, a, and so we try to really listen in on a lot of conversations in the social justice realm. The only way I know how to listen in is to show up. Um, And it's even better when people of faith show up. Uh, You know, what's the adage? You know, 80% of ministries showing up. And a lot of times social justice work, to be quite frank, for churches, it's kind of like an echo chamber. You know, they talk to each other uh, or they kind of build up their denomination to say, look at what we're doing. And I, that's not 
terribly impressive to me. Um, it's much more impressive when I see people of faith, pastors and lay folks showing up and building relationships with people who um, may never darken the door of your church. <laughs> it's going into African-American communities. It's, it's showing up at the, uh, you know, the prayer breakfast of the African-American pastors meeting on whatever day, you know, it's, and then it, out of these experiences, people start to, uh, you know, get a fire uh, or a fire starts, something lights in them. I'll give you an example. I had a retired software engineer in my church in Massachusetts who was kind of casting around. So I said, hey, Len, you know, let's, I see that they're helping homeless people that they put up in these hotels. You know, would you just come with me and let's learn about this together? And, you know, and then he started to do food deliveries and it, it just so affected him uh, and the relationships he built that he decided to set up a nonprofit to give first and last month's rent mm. to um, people who are trying to get into their apartments. Wow. Wow. But it didn't come through studying the issue or it came through a, you know, a very personal encounter. To say one other thing, um, I sometimes like to joke that, you know, United Methodists in the 19th century, you know, lay people at that time, they were much more interested in things like what's going on with slavery, what's going on with prohibition, you know, my family's falling apart because of alcohol. A lot of times it was women, you know, who really just were on fire to sanctify the world, their community. And, you know, indeed you have the United Methodist Women's Building, which is right at the edge of the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C., which was put there really to irritate Congress, really, you know. So I rather, I think that's a nice old historic image that we should hold on to rather than people sitting around and quibbling about how to have a better coffee hour. There's a basic cause to these issues. I mean, there are causes to any problem. My wonder is how much of your time is looking at the cause of the problem. Now, Alex, in, in your book, I'm going to name it again, Seeds of Justice, because I want everyone to read it. You talk about the, uh, the, the babies uh, upriver that are floating down and they're dead and, um, you know, all these babies. But you then say, well, we need to look upriver to see what, what the cause is. How much of your time is spent not just in activating people to do something, but to activate them to actually create effective change because you're really going after the cause of that problem? Yeah, I mean, I hope all of our uh, activity and energy is there, right? We should be really focused on how do we identify what's really creating trouble and injustice and how do we effectively change it? And I think that I love what, Brian, what you said a minute ago about like every piece of education has to be connected to action, right? I think that we often think we'll just educate people and the world will get better. But no, it's taking that, understanding what's happening in people's lives, helping them come to an understanding of what's creating that situation. And then how do we actually move and change it? And I think there's a couple real key pieces and another we already talked about sort of my first favorite dirty word in church, which is political, right? That's, you're not supposed to say that. And the second is the word power, that all of these, the fundamental issue is how much power is held by so few people and how we have to build a different kind of power to change that. And that's what I think the work of organizations like like the ones we're talking with and organizers is, how do we build enough power, bring people together to actually force systems to change? And the great thing when you focus about building power is that it, does, it doesn't sit in just one issue, right? When you build power, it's like building your muscles. And then whether it's football or basketball, you've got some basic 
uh, groundwork to build. And so when we really focus on how do we build enough power to change these systems that are destroying people, that's, and how do we effectively build a strategy that then utilizes that power? I think that's how we win. And just to close on a, a quote, because it's not just me, you know, Dr. King quoting Reinhold Niebuhr said that power without love is tyranny, but love without power is anemic sentimentality. And, and so if we don't want our love to be just a hallmark card, we have to get serious about that call to build power. Thank you very much. This is uh, just a, a quick announcement. This is Bar Crawl Radio. We're talking about social justice and working for social justice within uh, the American churches with uh, Alex uh, Tyndall Weisendanger. Weisendanger. I'm, I'm not going to get that right. Alex <laughs> Tyndall Weisendanger, uh, Reverend Peter Cook, and Brian Kramer. We're going to get down with a little bit of, I think, maybe contentious. I mean, we're talking about you know problems and causes of problems. In some instances, the church itself, the organized church, is part of the problem. That, that, that we're facing. How, how much do you get involved with that? I hear silence. <laughs> so uh, there's, a, there's a couple places. Um, it's a very big question, which is why I think you're hearing silence. Uh, but I think you're right. And the church is the problem in a couple ways. One, there are churches that are sort of actively agents of perpetuating injustice. Right? We see that a lot. Um, in a really upsetting way. But I go more and more to the real problem is the vast majority of churches that are just that think they can sit on the sidelines. Go back to the point Peter made earlier, which is an impossibility, right? Howard Zinn said you can't be neutral on a moving train. And I think that's right. And that the, the biggest problem, you know, or in Dr. King's letter from the Birmingham jail, that the problem is less the Ku Klux Klaner than the white moderate. It was his analysis there. That the fact that so many of us aren't acting at all is to me where, where the, the real issue is. So I personally tend to not try to move a church that is convinced that, you know, Jesus is a rich white guy who loves capitalism and hates brown people than I do on, on getting the 50 churches that aren't taking action at all in the public sphere to, you know, own their own uh, beliefs and take action on them. Okay. Peter, do you have a point, point of view on this? Or? I think the church, by definition, is a pretty screwed up place from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, you know, it was founded by, you know, this guy named uh, Peter. They called him the Rock, right? Well, he was the guy who, you know, sold Jesus down the river. Um, and yet, here we go, we're building a church based on this very imperfect person. So, you know, I think what we're called to do as pastors is to help churches admit their frailty and their brokenness and their imperfection and to somehow find that God's grace works through that in the middle of it all. Um, and, you know, even some of the crazy things that churches do that frustrate us, you know, there's reasons that they're there, that they do it that way. And you have to sort of be patient with that and to try to hold people's hands and look for the spots of transformation. But... You know, even that, you know, there are churches that are just capable of great evil, um, you know, who destroy their pastors, who, um, in spite of everything you do to, uh, you know, be caring and loving and so on, there's, I, I think sometimes they're just, you know, I don't really believe in the devil, but they're demonic forces that really can rip a church apart. And that's been true from the beginning. So I just, but I guess my only other point would be, so what institution isn't frail <laughs> and isn't profoundly broken? And sometimes people say, well, you know, the church is kind of an, anachronism. Well, of course it is. All institutions are to a certain degree. 
But the point is, how do you work with that broken vessel to do the ministry that God's called you to do? Good answer. How far does your resistance go? Is nonviolent, peaceful resistance with the possibility of rest part of your activity or mission? We've been working and talking with the members of the King... Kings Bay Plowshares, the uh, Catholic Kings Bay Plowshares workers. Seven against um, atomic um, and uh, the witness against torture, um, and they, they within their organization, within their groups, within their actions, decide. Someone will say, "Yes, I'll be arrested for this." Um, what about you all? Yeah, and, and, and Alex, you've been part of the Catholic worker community. I mean, you understand Dorothy Day and Peter Morin and mm-hmm. what they went through. So, where where is that? Where where, where is Political activism and arrest. Is, is, are you involved with that kind of activity? Yeah, you know, I've been arrested many times. I stopped counting because I, I realized it was sort of a spiritual masturbation of like, look, I've been arrested X times. I must be such a good activist. Um, so I think that there's, I mean, there's no doubt like Christianity worships a God who was arrested for civil disobedience, right? Like that's just a fact. And so that's just clearly something that is there. I think that there is a pretty clear call that whatever we do be nonviolent in, a, in, in the way we do it. I think that the tactic really should be driven out of a strategy of what do you think will create change? Um, I've moved away just personally myself from kind of symbolic arrest. But when you think about things, you know, civil disobedience movements, but that's not because I think it's wrong. It's just because I'm not sure it's strategically the strongest. But the kind of civil disobedience that actually shuts stuff down, right? When you think about the 60s and why sit-ins were so valuable, right? They actually shut down the ability for downtown businesses to run. And that's, I think, vital. Uh, But I think that what we shouldn't do is, is take a tactic divorced from a strategy. There are some campaigns, some decision makers will be very affected by civil disobedience. There are others who will not. And I think that that's, we don't just sort of apply, here's the cookie cutter campaign approach, no matter what we're doing. We take a look at what do we have to do? What's, what do we need to change here? Who are the decision makers that need to be moved? And then what are the tactics that demonstrate enough power to move them? And sometimes arrest is needed for that. Sure, if it if it's valuable, um, we had a wonderful arrest at the you know in the mayor's office, um, where we were doing an Ash Wednesday service of putting ashes at, at City Hall because of the murder of African Americans by the Chicago Police Department. Beautiful. Um, and it is very valuable and, and wonderful. Um, but I don't. I think also we should acknowledge whenever we talk about things like arrest, and I think this is important for us to say here. It's one thing for. American citizen white men to talk about being arrested. It's a totally different thing for people of color, people who are undocumented, people who already have a criminal record. It's a very, very different and vastly more risky tactic for those folks, right? And I think that we should acknowledge that if we we need to be really honest about that and acknowledge that. And I think there's a role for those of us who it's less risky for to put our bodies between systems and more vulnerable people. But I think we should also be clear that when we talk about that kind of tactic, it's two completely different conversations. One of the things I found very interesting about your your book, Alex, was um, I'm not a believer of Jesus, I'm Jewish, but your approach to his uh, teachings and his approach to activism uh, through the what he did was most enticing as a as a, a political leader to, to make change. So I, I really appreciated that, and I, I want to thank you for that and recommend people to take a look at that, Alex's analysis of, of Jesus' actions. We're in a very serious moment right now in, in this country, in the world, with COVID-19 pandemic. I thought maybe we can focus in on particular actions that the activist church, what can we do now? Peter, I was reading um, a statement that you made recently that the church advocates for just local, state, and national housing policy and financing. Maybe in this COVID-19 pandemic, we can take advantage and make some movements towards more positive social change Social change towards the homeless. Gosh, it, it's such a multi-layered 
kind of conversation, but I guess I'm just going to start with the real immediate harsh reality that in the capital region, a group, a landlord association released a statistic that showed that only 50%, maybe 40% of people were able to make rent uh, this last month. That statistic is usually more like 95%. Uh, and this is in the capital region, okay? Now, what is it looking like in New York City? Well, you know, there are, there was one trade association I saw that said that, you know, the, the rent compliance rate was more like 95%. I don't believe that for a moment. Um, I think there are a lot of people who are struggling to, um, to meet rent. And to just keep going farther, you know, the governor has, uh, you know, extended the time by which people could not be evicted to August 20th. But in that order, he narrowed things quite a bit to people only who could demonstrate that they were affected by the COVID crisis. And then what happens at the end of this eviction period when people are looking at a fiscal cliff of, you know, three, four months back rent, which they couldn't possibly do, then that sends them into court. And then God knows what's going to happen there. Then if you're undocumented, the last thing you want to do is be showing up in court to tangle with your landlord. Um, you know, you might get outed and picked up by ICE and this kind of thing. So we just really need people. We need massive assistance to help people cover their rent. In terms of homelessness, you know, we're seeing... Um, just as the city, particularly New York City, is moving people into hotels, you have a lot more people showing up at the shelters. So just as you start to thin those out a little bit to protect people, you have demand, which is escalating. The city's making some progress, um, but... You know, there's some question as to whether it's really using the resources that they've already been given to put people into hotels, you know, and then what do you do with people once who are formerly incarcerated who are trying to find their way as well. So that's kind of a landscape. I'm not doing justice to this at all. Um, but in the middle of that craziness, you know, we're trying to think through the strategies of how churches with property can think about how they might build housing or acquire property to build housing. You know, a huge percentage of the property in New York City is owned by faith-based institutions and nonprofits. And it's, there's a lot of possibilities there. But it, it takes a lot of creativity and expertise, and that's what we try to do, to kind of help churches think about that. You, you, you were making me feel real, real depressed with your first opening statement, and, and then you came up with something that sounds wonderful. I, I hope it could happen, and wonder if COVID-19, as a unique experience for humankind, could wake us up to a new imagination. Brian, I wonder if you have any thoughts about this. Well, that's what I was thinking. I mean, right, right now it's, it's tough, you know, with everyone settled at home. Um, we're, you know, fortunate. We've been donating to, um, to, to food banks and things. And as I mentioned, we're doing our, our postcarding from home. Um, what I'm really hoping though is, is once this whole, um, we come out of this, you know, settle in place. I'm hoping this has been a wake up call for people. And maybe they realize, you know, we focus a lot on government uh, in our justice team. M maybe they realize that, you know, government's not bad. Safety net's important. We need to, um, 
work on our, our medical system for all, um, but we've got a lot of work to do. And, you know, budget justice, we need the funds to do the right thing and get these social policies going. So, you know, we need to look for where we can come up with these funds and then put the funds to use in the right places. Yeah. I, this whole thing is quite quite depressing. They but there's good things that happened. Just today they opened up West End Avenue, which we live right above to to uh foot traffic so that, you know, and no cars but just foot traffic and so positive things happen. Well the, cars uh, going five miles an hour. Five miles an hour. Yeah. Uh the idea of uh churches pushing their property towards helping people find home. It sounds just amazing. And it reminds me of uh, this idea of Jubilee Year, which I'm sure you all are familiar with, in which, um, you know, every, was it every 50 years, people would uh, redistribute the wealth so that, you know, that it, it, it's, it's a natural kind of human nature that everything seems to go in one direction and then just redistribute it every 50 years. Peter, your idea sounds like something like that redistribution. Any thoughts on this idea? I know we don't, we're not going to have a Jubilee Year, but... What about the the feeling of a jubilee year, Peter? Go ahead. Well, I'm I'm just pondering that. I, you know, I mean, I, I when I think of jubilee years, I think of debt. You know, and I think mm. about the debt that so many people carry. You know, credit overextended credit card debt because they are paying you know forty five fifty percent of their income on rent or more, you know, or student loan debt or, um, you know, heavy amounts of debt in New York City where housing costs are just so high to offer people some relief in that way or, or at least to introduce some living options for people so that they're not having to be so debt dependent to survive, um, you know, seems like a very jubilee kind of thing to do. Mm -hmm. I like Um, that. Alex, any ideas about this? Yeah, um, I think everything that's been shared is is 100% right. The the thoughts that come to me specifically are, especially when we talk about the role of the church, one, if this crisis has or should remind us of anything, it's how interconnected we are. That when it comes to a pandemic, we are only as safe as our most vulnerable. And if you want to talk about why we need things like, you know, affordable rent and paid sick time and Medicare for all and all of those pieces, it's because of this. And you hope that we can remember that. It's also drawn a really stark line to show which lives we really value and which we don't, right? The fact that thousands and thousands of people are being condemned to death in jail for nonviolent offenses because they're poor and and black and Latino. But the last thing is, especially in the Christian tradition, we of all people should understand the idea of Jubilee and resurrection and how, you know, if we believe in a God who can make a way out of no way, there's a, you know, there's a really famous kind of teaching of praise God on the right side of the shore before you've gotten across the river you praise God because God has figured that out, you know, that the idea of rebirth into something better is where the church should have such a vital role to play in saying, how can we, from this moment and this tragedy, bring about something better, not go back to normal. I'm really tired of people saying that, because if you thought normal was good, you're not paying attention. Um, But how can we be a, a resurrection people? And that's, that's where I think we have some huge challenge, but the really opportunity and the work that the church has to do. It's, it's the work our political leaders have to do also. Um, and we all have to work towards that resurrection. Brian, any last words? What do you think about all this? Justice is important. The more we can get people involved, the, the better. Um, I think the folo- focus on the political is really, really important. You know, we've talked about how that's part of it. You know, one thing I realized when I was at the Doe Fund, there were just so many people. Um, and I realized the politicians can change things with the stroke of a pen. No amount of volunteering, no amount of giving can overcome bad policy. And the politicians are the ones that control, to a large extent, the, the policies. So 
you know, we have to get involved and make that work. The fact that we don't have any policy right now from our leadership indicates the enormous need for policy, the absence, the vacuum of policy. We need a government and leadership that can see us into the future. I pray that we we, we have need a one. path. We need a path. We, we need, need a path, path, and we need leadership. We have no idea. Yeah. Um, I mean, just on an anecdotal basis, I want to get and be with my grandson, but I have no idea. I mean, this is a bad example, I guess, but it's just what's no, affecting us, and it's and we don't know what's the right thing to do. We have lost Brian, and I think maybe we I have think to th- we're, thank we're you. Done, yeah. For, for this um, enticing and interesting I know, you didn't conversation. Cut that last bit out. It was too personal. I was going to say, no, that, you, you got to keep that comment you just made. So, <laughs> thank, thank you very much. I'll say thank you to Brian, who got kicked off here, and Alex and, and Peter. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you. Great. And, good, and really, good luck with your work. This is Bar Crawl Radio. Alina Larson. Alan Winson and I, Rebecca McCain, want to thank the Reverend Peter Cook, Brian Kramer, and Alex Tendell Wiesendunger for joining us today, and congratulations to Alex on the publication of his books, Seeds of Justice. Again, these are the sounds of the Upper West Side. Every evening at 7 p.m., across from where we are recording this BCR episode on Weston Avenue, a middle-aged man beats a great white plastic bucket with a wooden spoon and our neighbors rally in a five-minute riotous cheer for the medical workers and other essential workers of our embattled city. We thank you for your service and wish you a safe voyage through these dangerous waters. If you like what you hear, please contact us at barcoreradio at gmail.com. And everyone, be safe. Be safe.